this is the inaugural episode of Tricky Bits with Rob and PJ. In this episode, we're going to describe who we are, how we got here, and most importantly, why we're doing this. We've both been veterans of the tech industry for decades at this point in time. We've seen what works, we've seen what doesn't, we've seen what's fun, and we've seen what isn't. And we're going to be your guides on where tech is at, where tech has been, and where we think tech is going. So we're excited to have you on the journey with us. What is the stated goal? Where are we taking this? I think the goal of the podcast is we have seen a lot of fun stuff in the tech industry. We've been able to experience it. We've been able to build some of it as well. And I think there's a real joy that has been in the work that we've done. And there's also been a lot of soul-sucking stuff we've experienced in terms of how the business of tech, big tech, or the lack of business in big tech has really changed the landscape. So I think the goal that we're aiming for here is really to try to accentuate the deep technical fun that exists for the things that can be built, that have been built, and that we think should be built, as well as highlight like where a lot of the gaps are, where these companies effectively shoot themselves in the foot or damage the industry because of really ass-backwards thinking. And so I think ours is really this exploration between the stuff that's super enjoyable and beautiful and deep and technical and fun, as well as the bullshit that gets in our way. I would completely agree with that. There is a lot of joy to be taken from watching people play games. I think it's because we, both in the entertainment space, for the, the most part, like entertainment technology, whether it be games or movies or special effects or whatever it may be, it's a consumer product. The thing that we do isn't the consumer product. We just contribute to the consumer product. And there is a lot of joy to be taken from watching people enjoy the final product. And I completely agree that it's been easy and it's been hard and everything in between. And over time, that balance has changed. One of the most wonderful things, and I think this is true both for games and graphics in general, is that we also had to solve what amounted to fun, deep technical problems, where you're really getting at the guts of these things and asking these questions and not just taking it for granted where, oh, I, I won't even say C versus assembler at this point in time, where you have folks that are programming in Java or Python or something that is built on top of some kind of virtual machine stack at some level. And you're not even getting close to what the metal of that machine can do. And I think it is a lot of fun to dive that deep, especially in the areas where there are problems you're trying to solve, make faster, make it more efficient, to push the boundary. That to me is, I think, the essence of Tricky Bits. We're not going to be scared of going down to assembler or even transistors in order to explain something. I think we're going to expect a lot of our listeners and hopefully we can present things in a way that doesn't intimidate people who doesn't understand it. We can explain it in multiple ways. But I don't want 
to step away from the details simply because there's a handful of people who might not understand it. Absolutely. I'll fully admit there was so many things that I took for granted, especially coming out of school or even as a nascent programmer that really got uncovered for me, especially at Insomniac Games, when it really came time to figuring out how are we going to make this as fast as possible and as efficient as possible and as memory conservative as possible. And I found this life-changing, frankly, in terms of how I started to look at all the problems that came after that. It influenced me greatly at DreamWorks and beyond. So I think this is extraordinarily valuable that people have a holistic view and can reapply these lessons no matter what level of the stack you're at. Yeah, I agree. I think a lot of it comes down to understanding the problem that you're given. So Rob, how did you get into this whole computer thingy in the first place? It's the only career that I've ever had. I started when I was a kid. I was fortunate enough to be born at the right time. I guess I could have been born earlier and it would have been easier. But I was born in the 70s and I grew up in the 80s. And at that time in the UK, which is obviously where I'm from, there was a great home computer scene. We had all these new machines coming out. and People were all trying to find their own way. There was nothing right or wrong about what people wanted to do. And we had the, the Commodore machines, we had the, the Acorn machines, the Spectrum machines, and then the UK had a whole bunch of other random machines like the Dragon and the Amstrad and the Oric and a whole bunch of other computers who didn't go anywhere. My first computer, I always say my first computer was a BBC Model B, which was a legendary machine, still is to this day. And there's a whole story there of how the BBC got involved and wanted to do a, a computer program for the nation and wanted a machine that everyone could have that was standard and they did it was uh, quite successful and um, obviously the the gem of acorn was arm and the archimedes and the original arm processor came out of that whole program and i must say thanks to my parents for getting that because they were not cheap and they must have sold a kidney or something to be able to have afforded it Maybe my dad was a drug dealer. I got no idea. But anyway, I got one. And I very quickly learned BBC Basic. And BBC Basic was brilliant and still is. And it had a built-in assembler, which was the gateway to 6502. Like I said, everyone was doing their own thing, finding their own path. And I quickly found that media audio graphics, which led down the games and later the demo path, was where I wanted to do things. And... In that day, assembler was the only way to really get there. You had to move things quickly on a slow machine. You had to write an assembler, which is where my love of assembler originally came from. I have lots of fond memories of making really cool things. And my first commercial software products, and I wrote audio trackers and MIDI players and FM synthesizers and software renderers. and All these things came later. Some of them were on the Archimedes, but always done in the mindset of, Got to do it as quick as possible, because if I can do it quick, then I can do more or whoever I'm selling this software to can do more without me taking up the whole machine. I went to college. I never had a PC. My first PC was after college. 
I went to work for Chrysalis Software in Rotherham, England, and they made all the good Archimedes games. So I, I was basically, they were ports from the Amiga, Bitmap Brothers games, SimCity 2000, all sorts of really cool games for the Archimedes were all done by Chrysalis. So by this point, I'd got myself an Amiga and I still think it's the best machine ever made for, for a programmer's machine. It was brilliant. And because we were porting our Amiga games and some arcade games to the Archimedes, I was in heaven. It was like, this is awesome. I get to write Assembler every day and I get to write these cool games. And it was awesome. After Chrysalis, I got my first PC while working at Chrysalis. I didn't really program the PC much until I got to DreamWorks. And this was a whole learning experience for me. I'd never done x86. I didn't barely knew what it was. Uh, I'd never used any of the PC apps. I did all of my college stuff on the Archimedes. They had word processors and printer drivers and laser printers and blah, blah, blah. I didn't need a PC. And it was much easier to program than a PC was. So when I got to DreamWorks, they're making Trespasser. And it was in a very sorry state. It was very low performing, very high memory, and obviously a PC. And this was my first time working in a big team, making a new IP. I had a lot of ports, I had a lot of small teams. Some of these ports you could do by yourself. Some of them were two people working on the same port at the same time. And this was now a big team and he did this and she did that. And that's how it was. And it was producers and long-term schedules and things like that. And it was all new to me. It was my first venture into what you, today you would call AAA development. And the game was actually pretty good at this moment in time. It got worse before it got released and it should have ultimately been a run and gun shooter. But that game had so much tech. It had like the software renderer and it had bump mapping and per pixel lighting and we then code curvature into bump maps to get smooth surfaces. And it had the wavelet dynamic mesh terrain. It had volumetric clouds. It had inverse kinematics. And it was done in this giant C++ template and then one Uber function that would just call into all these templates. And that's where my hatred of C++ comes from because trying to write that in assembler was a nightmare. And what I did, I optimized it for Pentium, Pentium Pro, Pentium MMX. AMD showed up at some point and wanted a K6 version. So I made a K6 with 3D Now version. The game was delayed because the gameplay was crap by this point. And, and at the same sort of time, PCs were starting to get hardware. And 3DFX was out, blah, 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 and early games on the, using the hardware natively were starting to come out. And now these games were very fast at higher resolution, but didn't have the features we had. So when we were told to make a hardware version, so what do you do? And we were kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place. And the solution was never great. It was never going to be great. So they should have made that game into a Turok run and gun style game with some cool software tech and call it good. Ship it two years earlier. It would have been great. But it, that's not what happened. But to this day, the tech in that game is awesome. And at the same time, Microsoft was making a thing called Talisman. 
and this is going to predate most people listening. Uh, Talisman was a similar system. It was kind of a tile-based reprojection system, and but it wasn't perspective correct, so it was crap, and it ultimately got canned. But we did get the attention of Microsoft through doing this, and ultimately that's how I ended up at Microsoft was through this. I worked on DirectX for a bit and then ultimately was on the founding members of the Xbox team. Did all the system architecture for the original Xbox. And that was that point was just lots of paper calculations. It was like, okay, if if alpha blending takes does these operations on the memory bus, how fast can we alpha blend? How fast can we render? How fast can we clear the depth buffer? Blah blah blah. And if the CPU takes this much bandwidth assuming it's 90% cached access, how much is left for the GPU, blah, blah, blah. And we went through this for a whole bunch of different GPUs, different processors, and the executives, a typical Microsoft decision, picked Gigapixel as the people to do it. It was a tile-based render, similar to Power VR today, or Apple, or something like that. And back then, it was rubbish. Today, I may think differently about it, but back then, it was terrible. We caused a huge stink and ultimately got it replaced with an NVIDIA chip. I think if we hadn't have done that, Xbox would have gone the same way as all the other Microsoft consumer products that have made that's supposed to revolutionize an industry and never did. And the reason is because of decisions like that, where executives will just go, oh, no, we need to do this. And it happened again on Xbox because we originally picked an AMD processor and Bill Gates announced it at GDC without telling any of us that it's an Intel processor. And we didn't even know that it had switched. And Steve Ballmer switched it. And his comment was, don't fuck up the Intel account. That was literally his words. And we're like, okay, so all that work we just did is now mute. And this x86 is compatible thing. It's true to a limit. But at the level we were working at, doing like buzz calculations, it's not even close to true. They're not even similar. So we have to go back to all that again and do it again with NVIDIA as well. So that was a kind of a mess, but very typical Microsoft back then of like some external person would come in and be like, well, do this. And they have say, and that's what happens. So for a long time, Xbox was on very, very fragile ground. It was almost just a, a, a bullet point on Microsoft's list of failed projects. And... Fortunately, that didn't happen. So we made the Xbox, we did the demos, we made those big shiny Xs, which were kind of cool. Ultimately, I left Microsoft and first attempt at starting my own company. This would have been about 2001, two, uh, one. I started my own company. My goal here was I could help people make Xbox games because I know more about it than anybody because I built the damn thing. And it became fairly obvious that it's actually a viable business. But in doing this, I got involved with the PlayStation 2 quite a lot because everyone was making PlayStation 2 games with the Xbox games. And typically they were leading on the PlayStation 2 and porting to Xbox. There was a lot of things that were not similar. In fact, nothing was similar across those two machines. So porting was kind of tricky. I'd done lots of ports. I got the angle of these things. And that's what I was doing. And I, but I already did it for about three or four months. And somehow, and I don't really remember how, I met Ted Price. And I don't know whether it was by fluke or whether it was through the PS2 work I was doing. I can't honestly remember how it happened. And 
it's like, well, we got a conversation going. They ended up like, why didn't you come work for us? And it's like, yeah, why don't I come work for you? So my dreams of doing my own business went on the back burner and I went to Insomniac. And this was about 2001. It's Ratchet and Clank 1. And I didn't go to the Barham office because they were moving to the current location in Burbank, the old Lockheed building. There I was working on the Ratchet and Clank PS2 engine. It was me and Al Hastings were basically the only engine programmers on that game. But they had Ratchet 1, Ratchet 2, and Ratchet 3. And about this point, Mark Cerny came to me and says, we're starting this project called the ICE Team. It's the initiative for a common engine. And today it's just known as the Sony ICE Team. And, but that's its actual name. And it says there's going to be a Naughty Dogs officers there in Santa Monica. And I'd like to be part of it. And it's, it's also like this team's going to basically get early access to the PlayStation 3. And we'll start doing common code, highly optimized code for the PlayStation 3 for all first parties. So I ended up on this team and we went to Japan a few times and worked. We had secret access to all of these really cool simulators and emulators and like cycle level accurate stuff. And they had this GPU, it was in-house, it was called the Sony RS, but it only did pixels. It was envisioned that the SPUs and the processor would do first. And they had this thing called the LDPCU, which to this day, I don't know how it works. All the instructions were in Japanese. Mark Cerny could read it, but he wasn't even quite sure how this thing worked. It was basically an asynchronous gatekeeper where you could let the vertices run out of order. And it would send them onto the pixel shader in order in submission order, that is. So it would render correctly, even if bits of it were done out of order. Whatever, I think, uh, it never actually existed. It was just an idea as to how to connect A to B. A being vertices, B being pixels. So they made this Sony RS, and it was kind of power VR-ish, in that it had no fixed pipeline. Everything was in software, the depth buffer, the alpha blending. It basically made you do everything, which in some ways is great because you could do anything you wanted to do. So we spent a lot of time looking at tools of how would you program this thing. And then we realized in doing this, you had to schedule it yourself too. So we're like, why are waves going through the GPU today? And it automatically allocates based on resources that are available. And if you've got a shader that uses more memory, you might get less threads going through because you run out of local memory. Likewise, if you use a lot of registers, you might not have optimal number of threads because you're going to run out of temporary storage. You have to do all that yourself. And you have to trigger the passes yourself too. So you'd like go to here, stop, go do to here again, then continue. It was this whole kind of nightmarish scenario as to how you had to write these shaders. I wrote bump env. It took ages to write bump env mapping, optimal, no stalls at all. And it was all done on this simulator, I believe it was called Olive. And it was a cycle level simulator of the... And it's like, this is going to be hard to program. Like, what tooling do we need? What Do we need a compiler? Blah, blah, blah. And how does this integrate with LDPCU with the vertices? We didn't even consider that. I was just like, give me three vertices and screen space and I'll start there. All that's a problem for a different day. So... It was hard to program. And then Sony made the thing, or la- at least laid it out in silicon and realized that this thing is not possible to make. 
it's huge, physically huge in number of transistors. And Sony weren't GPU architects. I mean, they, they were already behind NVIDIA and AMD at this point, and Matrox and everyone else who existed in the early 2000s. So they did what the first thing you would expect to do is you start cutting things. So they cut the things that took the most area. And that was all the good stuff. So now it was even harder to program and less powerful and ultimately useless because it didn't do vertices. So there was a bit of a panic. They started looking at, well, what if we put four SPUs in? Can we, or four cells? Can we render in software? So the ICE team were looking at like, how would you render in software with a 256K buffer in each SPU? Yes, it was just 256K, SRAM, fast as hell, but that's all you got for everything. So that was code, data, DMA, input, output buffers, and all of that. So we looked at software rendering. You could definitely write a software renderer and it would be pretty decently quick. And again, it fit me perfectly because I've wrote tons of them by this point. But now you're competing with hardware. So like feature sets starts to become really important. And shaders, how do you do a shader when you've got a software optimized renderer? How do you just drop in a shader and make it optimal? I mean, there has to be a boundary somewhere. And what happens if this SPU does this 32 by 32 block and this one does this 32 by 32 block? What do you do with the boundary? And things like that. It was possible, but it wouldn't be great. And it wouldn't compete with the Xbox 360, which has a real GPU. And that's ultimately the goal, yeah? It was out at the same time as the 360 was coming out and it had to compete. So then they looked at like, well, let's put 128 PS2 shaders, uh, shader cores in it and things like this and weird esoteric things where we could have big blend units that you could just feed back into each other and do these multi-plus blenders, which is kind of how originally DX9, the, not DX90, the NVIDIA GeForce, the original one, kind of had these blend stages. It didn't have shaders. It just had these blenders that you could program between each stage, and you could kind of get it to do various effects. So, no, was the answer. Yes, it's, it'll work. No, it won't compete with the 360. It was a DX10-class GPU, and the PS3 only got a DX9-class GPU in the end. Because in the end, they went to NVIDIA. And we prodded them. I had some contacts in NVIDIA from doing the Xbox stuff. And we kind of pushed them, Sony, towards that direction. It was very no at the time because it's Sony. And A, the Japanese culture is not one to go out and ask for help, especially from an American company. But it was the only way they were ever going to compete. So they went to NVIDIA. They got the RSX. It was kind of an oddball. It was never... Exact chip was never used in any sort of graphics card. Obviously, it had vertices. So now, what do we do with the SPUs? Don't need them. They don't need to do vertices anymore. Now they can do anything they want. So the ICE team, going back to that, had this whole initiative now to like, what can we make these SPUs do? And the answer is, if you're doing first-party code, you can make them do anything you want. If you're porting code for like the Unreal Engine, you're screwed. Because... Everything was DMA-based. You had to DMA in process, DMA out. There was no, I'll access this memory. You could access it and DMA it and write a template to hide it, which I think is what Bungie did. They could just run code on the SPU and it would silently DMA in the background and cache and things like that. We, being first party, took the opposite approach where it was just make it work. 
do whatever you need to do. Doesn't matter how ugly it is. And that was the saving grace of the PS3. It wasn't the NVIDIA chip. It was less powerful than the AMD chip in the Xbox. The saving grace indirectly was NVIDIA because that freed up the SPUs. And it could have been any GPU, to be honest with you. But having those SPUs for physics and audio and particles, and in the end, we're like manipulating frame buffers and command buffers and all sorts of really questionably dodgy things on the SPUs. Initially, we didn't have register level access to the to the GPU and NVIDIA was very adamant that we would never get it, as they always are. And they get us open jail. That's all we got was open jail. And it's like, oh, this is rubbish. But they screwed up because they printed on the debug TTY, they printed address of command buffer is here. So it's like, oh, okay, I'll just point the debugger with that and see what you put in it. And <laughs> so we'd call GL and we'd look at the command buffer and it's like, yeah, that's actually the command buffer. And it's like, if I put my own data in there, it'll execute that too. And we soon figured out like lots of the structure of the command buffer. I quickly realized it's the same kind of format as the Xbox was. So all bits started to fit together. So we went on a whole project here of reverse engineering the RSX. And we made this thing called IG render, which was Insomniac Games render, and also Ice render. Two projects doing the same thing. And we'd just share as much information as we could find. And we very quickly figured the entire GPU out, including instructions and instruction formats and everything. It took quickly being a year or two. It took a while. And enough that we could use it directly without having uh, to use any of OpenGL. You had to call something like, if I remember, you'd call like GL flush. And in one of the registers, when it returned to you, in one of the volatile registers that the compiler doesn't have to restore, it left the pointer to the control registers. So you could call it and you had to pull like R12 or something like that. You'd call this function, extract R12 into a variable. And that was the DMA controllers for put and get. So you could now start and stop the GPU itself. Ultimately, all of the stuff we reverse engineered and made inline in our own code, ultimately, years later, became part of libgcm. So the CPU overhead of our system was minimal. And resistance would not have been possible without that ultra-low overhead CPU code. However, we submitted the game and they're like, where's the render code? They're like, you can't do this. You can't render yourself. It's like, well, we are, and it's not possible without. So we had a whole fight with them. I felt like, it has to be this way. And in the end, they're like, just make it all ice render. Get rid of IG render. Make it all ice render so it's at least kind of supported. And we'll allow it. And the reason they won't allow it is they hadn't tested all the register combinations. Like if you set a texture, you set it A, B, C, D, E. You write the register in this order. But if you set A, B, and then later on set C and D, and then reset A, and then set E, they weren't quite sure what the GPU was going to do. And it ultimately didn't do anything. But they hadn't tested any of this, so that's why they won't let us do it. So they started to test some of the vectors uh, that Ice Render would kick out, and then we just used Ice Render. It was the same thing. It was all in line. It was fine. But anyway, that's that was a long time insomniac. So after that, I ultimately had a kiddo. Uh, this machine was born in 2004, yep. and it's probably 2008, something like that now. I decided I was going to leave LA and 
move somewhere else. I almost moved to Bend, Oregon, but ultimately moved to Boulder, Colorado, which is where I am right now. And brought the kiddo here because I didn't want to raise her in LA. I wanted her to have more of a childhood that I had of outdoors, of north of England, playing outside, all that. So we moved to the foothills of the Rocky Mountains, just west of Boulder. And she grew up as a mountain kid and she loved it. But I had to leave Insomniac. So I came to Boulder and I became a consultant for Insomniac for many, many more years. I worked on all the rest of the PS3 games, the early PS4 games, the Xbox game they made. I uh, worked on all that. So basically the PS4 engine architecture was mine. The PS5 engine that they have now, as we've seen in the league, is kind of the same engine they used to have. So it's also mine. So yeah, all those are mine. But when I got to uh, Boulder, became a consultant, I actually did finally start the company that I was going to start 10 years earlier. So I became a consultant, uh, did a lot of work for Insomniac, did a lot of work for Otoy as well, which was early video research at this point. Still doing lots of path tracing, still doing lots of novel camera things. They had, they still own Lightstage. So they are... Uh, at the early, early light stages. They had the first functional one, the, the first geodesic one. And um, I did a lot of work on that, a lot of data processing, a lot of handling of the, how do you synchronize everything? And um, now I guess it's just a package you can buy and anyone can have a light stage. So the, the new ones do specular and diffuse and all this. If you don't know what light stage is, go look it up. It's Paul Debevic, ICT invented. So in doing that, I did a lot of movie work lots of special effects stuff and it was always like oh special effects in real time would be great but you look at how a movie does it and like they're not shy of modeling the whole scene if they have to they have to get go and get an architect and build this entire building as a 3d model precise exact to what it is in the real world they will they're not shy it needs to be perfect it will be perfect and if that moss on that building needs to be modeled it will be modeled. And that was that. So I was involved a lot with like how shadows and how do you put a real shadow on a fake object? And I'd, even more difficult, how do you put a fake shadow on a real object? And this is the, the art of special effects is how it all integrates together. And so today it's more integrated than it was, but back then it wasn't. Anyway, all of this took me to... Uh, Magically, where initially AR, my view of initial AR was there's a lot of technical problems to solve. There's a lot of things that have to be in place to make AR or VR work at all, like head tracking and prediction and abusing command buffers to get that prediction data into the GPU at the last possible second. But once this is solved, it's a commodity product. So I did a lot of that work. It was all low level. I always loved that work. So I did a bunch of that, and then a lot of it was how to use AR, and this still hasn't been answered. My view of AR, the ideal AR is a movie special effect. It's indistinguishable from the real world. It's fake, but it integrates with the real world perfectly. Yeah, not going to happen. But one day it might. I think today AR is in the, like, late 19, mid-1970s computer graphics. You can have pixels, you can have jagged lines. It has to be pink, apparently, because everything in AR seems to be pink. 
So maybe it stands out. I don't know. Pink's everyone's favorite color. It's actually really difficult. And the type of AR matters too, as to whether it's mixed reality, overlaid camera stuff, or whether it's truly looking through glass, putting pixels in the world, magically HoloLens style. And once you've solved the technical problems, you start to solve the visual problems. of like, how do you do a shadow? If you've got an additive display, how do you render a shadow at all? You can't render black. You add black, nothing happens. So how do you even pop fake shadow on a fake object? Like I have a coffee table, and I have an object, I want to cast a shadow. Technically not possible with AR because you can't render black. You can't render anything darker in the scene. You can't subtract the light from what's coming in. So you've got to invent all these new techniques of like, how do you do it? And we, some crude ways of doing it was like just render a gray polygon over the whole screen and then you can subtract from the gray to make it look like there's a shadow, but that reduces the contrast and dynamic range of the rest of the scene. And there's all issues with that. So, and then you get into lighting of like, okay, I have an object that's in a room and the light turns on. How quick does that object in the in your glass have to respond to the fact there's now a light light in it? It was a hard, it was a blast and it was, none of it worked great. I mean, none of it's ready for consumer space. And I think that's true to this day. It, this was 2015 or so, and so almost a decade ago. It, it wasn't great. The work was great, but the results were impossibly difficult and so demanding. Your vision system as a human is so good at spotting defects. It's not Your vision system's not great at all, technically, which is why AR works at all. But it's incredibly good at spotting defects. And if it's something it doesn't like, You'll just focus on that, and it's really difficult. So after Magic Leap, after that, I went to uh, Daiquiri, did more AR work, and Daiquiri was not meant to be. They're the ones who convinced me that AR is practical and viable in a very controlled environment, and enterprise industrial is that controlled environment where you could say, these lights have to stay on all the time. That window has to stay closed. Consumers don't live by those rules. So AR in the consumer space is much more difficult. But Daiquiri did indeed have an enterprise system where you could wear glasses and it would show you, take two of these, one of those, put it here, do this, do that. And it would watch you and tell you what to do. And it was kind of decent in its environment. Something else Daiquiri was working on at the time was holographic displays. Seamus was doing these. And we had these crazy LCOS devices that would basically change the refractive index of a pixel. And by changing the refractive index of a pixel, you can bend light. And if you can bend light, you can make holograms. So we had these real-time holograms. They were this big, like minuscule things. But you could put lenses there and make it bigger. It was a, yeah, so it was a projected hologram from a one plane and you've got a hologram in space and it worked great. We made a whole API so you could render. It's like a GL type API so you could render things in holographic space. And it was color too. That tech got spun off. When the company went down, that got spun off into a company called Pacific Hologram, which Seamus ran. And I believe it still exists. Their website still exists. It, uh, it's still in stealth mode, according to the website. But maybe I've just spilled the beans. Ultimately, I stopped doing that. And I actually missed a bit in all this. In all of this... There was the Ratchet HD collection, which is 
before I went to Magic Leap. As I said, I started this company. I always wanted to start. I worked for Otoy. We did all that. In all of this, Sony decided that they wanted to make a, H a PS3 HD collection of the Ratchet PS2 games. They were looking at some companies like, oh, we'll just port it to C and do all this. And it's like, I don't think you re can re realize what you're up against. Game, the engine's straight assembler. There's no C in it at all. And it's all very DMA driven and very asynchronous with all the vector units. I think as Ted Price who says, the only people who could do this is either us or Rob, because he's now a consultant and he wrote the damn thing. So Sony came and was like, yeah, make this game. So I ended up making the HD collection of the PS3 with a company called Idle Minds who were in Broomfield, which is next to Boulder. And basically because they had testers and DevNet access and they were PS3 developers, so it was easy to do it with them. But yeah, it involved reverse engineering the entire game. And there's a whole story there as to like, we couldn't recover any of the assets or the tools. So we did it all from the retail disc. So it was the best way to go in the end, but kind of a nightmare at the time. So, but anyway, that was before Magic Leap. Then Daiquiri. Then I still had this business the whole time I was at Magic Leap and at Daiquiri. I still kept my company in the background, not doing much. And that stayed true, did a bunch of contract work for many different companies. And ultimately ended up at Apple. And that's when I finally shut my company down because Apple being Apple, there's lots of rules and worked on the Vision Pro. Yeah, indeed. Worked on the Vision Pro and again, more AR, but this time not real AR. This is now projected mixed reality, as they call it. I call it projected AR because it's from a camera and you're not looking through a piece of, you're not looking through glass, which you project light into. You're now looking at basically a VR headset with cameras that capture the real world, render on top of it, and then present you the whole image, which is very different to real AR. It's much easier to ha handle latency in the mixed reality, Apple-style projected AR than it is in the real-world AR. Because real AR, the real world's going to do what the real world does, and there's nothing you can do to stop it. Whereas with the camera-based AR, you can subtract, you can subtract light, you can do anything you want to do. But you have all the display problems and all things like that. So I did that and I left Apple a year, two years ago. Oh, a year ago. And Vision Pro comes out next month. So we'll see how it is. It's pretty, for what I remember of it, it's a pretty nice device. And I still don't think it's consumer ready. No matter who makes it or what they make, the technical problems of living in the real world are far bigger than the technical problems of making the device work. As we found out at Magic Leap, as we found out at Daiquiri. I don't think Apple have the staff or the inclination to solve those problems. Apple's not a special effects company. They might solve the technical problems really nicely. They might have displays. They might have super low latency. It might have great head tracking. But that only gives you AR. It's what you do with it then that defines the product. There isn't any killer apps for AR. And I think we should do a whole article, a whole podcast on AR and go into the details of this. Uh, it's been a great ride. Uh, I do a lot less of this stuff now than I 
than I used to. I think pass the baton to a new generation is the same for real world problems. Like we've had our stab at it. We've set up these great frameworks. We've set up these great platforms. We've built understanding. We stood on the shoulders of giants when we started. And now it's time to pass it to the next generation. Let them have a go. And maybe they'll do better. Maybe they won't. But it's it's time. The origin story. I was in the late 70s. So a lot of my early childhood really was in the really through the 80s and early 90s. And one of the things that I absolutely loved was an explosion of visual effects and visual effects development that was happening. And it, it connected so well with these stories, it also resonated for me. So I love the movie Tron. It's one of my favorite movies, and it hits all the buttons. I really love that it is this wonderful combination of engineering and math and art all coming together at the same time. It, it happened at the same time that my family had a Commodore 64. That was something that my, my dad got. I think it was like 84, I want to say. And what I started doing was I learned basic, basically. Uh, because I would load up games, you know, play them and whatnot, toss them in the disk drive. But then I was really curious about how to actually do this stuff. So my dad had a subscription to Commodore Magazine. I would read the Commodore Magazine as it would come in, and I would look at all the code that was in there for like little games or little like fireworks display or whatever. So I was doing a lot of that while we we're still in Florida. And then after my parents got divorced, we ended up, my mom and my brothers and I ended up moving initially back to New York where I didn't have the computer for the longest time. And then we ended up in Providence, Rhode Island. Uh, early high school, I ended up getting a Commodore Amiga 500. It was a Beautiful machine. I, so I'll, admittedly, I didn't dive as far deep into that. What I liked doing with it is actually there was a lot of built-in tools you could just do a lot of very cool things with. I was able to get a copy of Deluxe Paint, too, or something like that, which you could do some really primitive animation and 2D stuff in. And then I could actually even output that to the VHS tape. It had a built-in speed synthesizer. So I was able to use that for movies we were shooting at the time in high school. It was a lot of fun, basically, to even just play with it as a content production machine, which is what I was doing a lot. I think kind of a Wild West time for consumer computer graphics, because like, there was Caligari, there was like Lightworks. Um, I, mean, I think Autodesk obviously had the high-end stuff at the time. Uh, 3D Studio Max was happening. Caligari's True Space is actually what I had, and it was the computer teacher at my high school had either gone to Brown or new folks at Brown. She was able to get a copy of True Space. So this was like True Space 2 or 3. And for me, it was amazing. It was a full environment. It was basically like Maya plus a renderer. And again, a very primitive version of Maya, but still. It had animation in it. It had um, the set geometry where you could do intersection, addition, subtraction of solids. So you could do some really cool stuff like with it. And so I like got together a whole bunch of, I didn't have a PC at the time in high school, but my friends did. So I basically like, started big borrowing and stealing time on each of their machines or getting them to do stuff so that we could actually cobble together like all of these different scenes and assets of starships fighting each other. And then in order to get it off of 
So I got it all rendered, and I ended up getting friendly with the Browns Computer Graphics Lab. Uh, this is 96. And I was able to, like, able to do stuff there and render it there. And then they had, I think it was Media Composer at the time, where I was able to actually output the scenes onto VHS. Because <laughs> every single time like, I said, okay, I got to do this, like, how are we going to get it off? I don't know yet. We got to figure out the next problem. So it was always like, like we had a little bit of stuff and then we figured it out. And then a little bit of stuff and we figured it out from there. And then we like ultimately got it done. And that was exciting and fun, which was like, we didn't have to necessarily know how to do everything at the same time. What we needed to do was really figure out like how we're going to get it just the next step. That was okay. And we'll figure it out and change it. So I ended up going to to Boston University because I I could I went there on because I could we couldn't afford really any other university like so I was able to go there on scholarship and the comical thing is I was like excited to do computer graphics type stuff but I had misread the course catalog so the course catalog had computer graphics in the computer science department versus the computer engineering department so I actually ended up going to the computer engineering department. Boston University was unique in that it had a computer science department that came out of its math department and a computer engineering department that came out of its engineering, like electrical engineering department. So we actually had both of these things which were similar, but tended to have different foci. I ended up more, in many ways, as a precursor to stuff I would do in grad school. I ended up taking a lot of like signal processing courses. Uh, we had some basic courses that we had to take. So like just understanding convolution, understanding like digital processing. But then I took the graduate level courses as my, because you needed to take a couple of those in order to uh, get your undergraduate degree. So I ended up taking the, the DSB course for in undergrad, which was hilarious because that meant I couldn't take it when I actually stayed there for grad school. Now, at the same time, basically, I was actually still shooting movies. I was doing some plays. I picked up some improvisational comedy skills. And then after I got a PC and I got a board where I actually could pull in the video, I was starting to do editing of those videos in Adobe Premiere 4.2. At the end of BU, my undergrad, I didn't really plot out stuff very well. Um, I tried to get into MIT's Media Lab. I didn't get into MIT. So that was the second time they rejected me. And, um, but what happened was they ended up getting a couple of professors at BU that were doing computer vision in the computer science department and a lot of image and video processing in the computer engineering department. So I was able to swing it to take courses both ways. Finally got my graphics course there. And this is a, I'll tell a, a tragic yet comical story at the same time of why I never properly learned rasterization in a second. But at the same time, during my first year of grad school, I actually picked up a consulting job working for a financial company on Wall Street because my dad used to work there and he had some people who needed to do some, actually it turned out to be some database stuff, which I didn't know anything about. But it was like, all right, well, let's just learn this stuff on the job, figure it out, make some mistakes. And so I picked up a bit of SQL, did a bit of Java. I didn't know Perl at the time. It would have been really useful for doing the parsing I had to. But I, so I did that for a year while I was, you know, my first year of grad school, which I was also doing as a teaching fellow, teaching algorithms. So I actually helped teach the algorithms course. And I was the only person to volunteer for that one because I was this 
found I found it interesting. So I ended up Spielies and Kellogg was in Jersey City. My grandparents lived in Queens, New York. I used to take the train from Queens to underneath the World Trade Center, the Twin Towers, and then hop another train to go to New Jersey. I stopped working there August of 2001. And the the day that I was supposed to learn rasterization, and they still had the course that day, was September 11th, 2001. So I missed that class, probably for obvious reasons that day, because it was just a crazy day at that point in time. And then never, I learned ray tracing fine, but never properly learned like rasterization. It was always a little bit of a chip up my shoulder for that one. But I'll admit, like, I was a little bit listless in grad school. I couldn't quite figure it out. I did squeak by with my master's project at the end, which was trying, this goes back to my movie thing, like my master's project was trying to use stereo cameras to improve lighting for green screen. And doing stereo reconstruction at the time was a pain in the ass. And it was basically doing it in a block matching system with some um, map estimation on top of it to try and like constrain it a bit. But it was some fun stuff where I was able to like take the two stereo images and because it was a green screen, I was able to take advantage of the, the alpha value you can get out of it and use phase correlation as an initial like seed for your map estimation for when you're doing the actual stereo stuff. So it was like, there was, there was a couple cool things there. It wasn't in the end particularly practical, but it was squeaked me by. And then after that, I headed out to LA. So I and a buddy took three weeks to drive out from Rhode Island because I knew a lot of friends <clears throat> and I couch surfed the entire way. And then I, in LA, I didn't actually have a job. I crashed at a cousin's place for a little while and worked a lot of odd jobs, doing some marketing assistantship to technical consulting. And then I ended up at, um, I, I answered, this was when, I was using Craigslist at the time to answer <clears throat> for a position at USC's Institute for Creative Technologies. So ICT, which is where Paul DeBevick was at, he was doing like light stage stuff there. I was not working with Paul. <laughs> I was working offsite in this little warehouse in Marina del Rey called Flatworld. And their concept was, because they were working a lot with the military, send a UAV through to collect cloud data points, reconstruct a 3D scene from that, and then have all these screens you could put up so that people could train through it really quickly. So project the scene that you're rendering onto these screens, and then you can go through it. And <clears throat> they had uh, Ogre as their open source game engine. Uh, and this was at the time where there was like a bazillion game engines that were floating about. Unreal was there at the time, but it wasn't great at that moment of doing third-person stuff, which is what we wanted. Was Ogre ever great? Ogre wasn't. So I ended up replacing... So I didn't really know much at the time, Rob. This is like really like nascent stuff for me. But I ended up... like They had used Ogre because it was free, and then they bought a license for Gamebryo. They're like, use Gamebryo. And I was like, all right. Let me figure out how to put this thing together. So, like, I had to, like, figure out how to, like, you know, just do all of this stuff. I ended up rewriting the whole system with Gamebryo clients because the Ogre one, I can't remember exactly what happened, but it failed. There was a day that came 
where I had gotten everything up and running, but we just hadn't done the switch yet from the Ogre one to the Gambriel one. And this day where they were like having people come by and see it, we had to switch it. So it was like, it was a little trial by fire, but it worked. Uh, and then I augmented with a few other things. I did, I was, I did one of those things, like everyone writes their own ray tracing engine at some point in time, especially in college. I made the questionable decision of writing my own scripting language for this thing. And that was a very bad idea. Later on, they replaced it with Lua, which was a much better idea. Around about the same time, because we had seen a lot, some, a bunch of success, uh, this is back in 04, there was this virtual soldier project they wanted to do where, again, the concept for it at the time was that there was significant cultural differences between, let's say, the U.S. and other, like, at the time, you know, we were in the, the, the U.S. was knee-deep in the Middle East for Gulf War II. And the idea was, like, there could be certain things that are considered aggressive by American standards that were actually just part of the culture. So what they wanted to do is be able to have soldiers train with kind of these sort of culturally appropriate modules so that you could get used to the cultural engagement at, and do this at scale to effectively prevent like bad things from happening, like shooting people. Um, so what we did is we had this speech recognizer that we hooked up to a primitive AI, and then we took a graphics client I wrote with a virtual human that we produced. And we actually had a couple different versions of this. So we proof of concept this once, we actually used for a little while Microsoft's, Microsoft had a speech synthesizer in, engine. And what basically it would do is it, it would kick out phonemes. And then we would map those to visemes that we would then use to animate the face in real time. It didn't look great, but it was cool that we could do it on the fly. And then we projected this under this piece of plastic that if you lit it properly, kind of looked like a hologram. So I did that for about like a year and change. And then I tried to get into DreamWorks Animation because their compositing group had a, an opening. And um, I didn't get the job. <laughs> but it was just after I had interviewed with Insomniac Games. And I had gotten an offer from Insomniac. And when I asked DreamWorks, like, because they said I didn't have production experience. And it's always one of those things like, how do you get production experience if you don't work at a production company? But I asked them, like, would a game company count? They said yes. So I immediately said yes to Insomniac Game, um, which kicked my ass. <laughs> oh, my God, man. Like, I, I'll be honest. Like, I did pretty well in college. And then even my first couple of jobs where I was high flying, I thought, you know, kind of a hot shit. And, oh, my God, I did not know how much I didn't know. <laughs> like, I, it was, it's, like, embarrassing at this point in time to look back and see, like, I just, I, you all were, were doing such high-tech stuff, and, like, I, I, I felt just like my knowledge uh, was just going to get totally ripped down, which it was, which was great, honestly. It was one of those things that was, um, like, actually highly necessary. And I will always joke, though, for when, for Resistance, um, Gavin was the one who suggested us using Anarch. I said to him, I don't think this is a good idea. And then he overruled me, and then he left being the lead of the tools team. Um, so just what the hell? That's I was left, <laughs> that I was left dealing with this relationship now at this point in time and making this work. It was very much so. I had to, 
and there was so much shit I didn't know, and I feel embarrassed about it now. But as we got into the fact that it was the memory management was the biggest problem, and having to like they like Anarch rewrote it so we could replace the memory manager. They was able to replace it in Lua because that was the scripting language they were using, and that's really where I like encountered you the most. Which I'll be honest, the concept behind it was decent because the idea was like, is there a way so that designers could like directly basically get their stuff in without having to have a programmer program it? So like, could a designer basically use Lua and the art assets and the tool of Anarch, export it and have it just work inside the game? Yep. Uh, yeah. I, and I, I, I do want to comment that, I mean, this was... Because I was working basically both in the tools and on the sort of rendering side, it put me in contact with you, and you intimidated the hell out of me. Uh, <laughs> like, um, like it was, it was, uh, it was like, all right, I don't want to, I don't want to bug Rob, but I got to bug Rob. Like, <laughs> um, like they they messed up long jump here. I, <laughs> I I don't really know what to do. This was like the oh, uh, one of the versions. I do remember fixing that. Yeah. And I was just like, look, like, Lua needs this, but I looked at the assembly and set jump and long jump were identical. And I was like, I've, I've, I've hit my sort of knowledge. And you gave me a great patch that worked well, so appreciate that. And we were both tea drinkers. I was, I've become more of a coffee drinker now, but you introduced me to PG Tips. I still drink um, PG Tips. I have a, a coffee do. in the morning. I've got one in my hand right now because it's... Nice. I remember the day you actually let, headed out from the office and you dropped off your stash of tea with me. And I was always touched by that. So anyway, I, uh, I, I was there for the end of Resistance. And then comically, I was not going to be put on Ratchet. I was going to be put on Ra Resistance 2. And, and I actually was also talking with Sean McCabe at the time because he was looking for a new audio guy. And I was helping him put together like interview questions for audio because of my signal processing background. And instead, basically, I, that was going to be a possibility of heading over to the audio side. But I actually, there was a tools opening on the rendering team, the lighting slash rendering team at DreamWorks. So I tried for them again, and then I got it that time. So I ended up heading over to DreamWorks Animation, which kind of was that dream I had of working in the movies. So I spent the first year and a half as just like a programmer, and I was on the lighting tool for three weeks making improvements. And then after that, they had a, they, they were doing what was called the mini farm, which was basically a distributed renderer, interactive renderer, basically. So they would take a few machines and they wanted to split it up so they could have better iteration cycles before doing the full blown render. So I was the sec person part put on that and I was able to figure out a bunch of stuff. And then after that, they kept me doing different like rendering things like I worked on in, like speeding up because the, the way the, the DreamWorks renderer worked was two passes one which was a primary visibility cache and then the second which was the lighting pass and it turned out that if that that primary visibility cache was nearly enough for both eyes so you could actually just render a few more polygons for both eyes and then light both at the same time and if you didn't really care about camera dependent stuff which a lot of time you didn't depending on what layer you're talking about you could actually just light it once 
and you get some pretty impressive improvements in terms of rendering times. So anyway, I did that, and then I got tapped to become the tech lead of rewriting the lighting tool because DreamWorks had hit a scalability issue. And a lot of the artists were actually not doing lighting anymore. They were doing, like, 80% of their job was file management because the tools no longer, like, they were built with this notion that they could hold the entire context of the scene in memory at the same time. And as you started to get, like, foliage and fur and giant, like, crowds, like, just was not possible anymore. So the idea was, like, we wanted to rewrite these tools from scratch and also reinvent the workflow, which was, it's funny, because when I went into DreamWorks, I was like, man, this code is nowhere near as efficient as, like, what Insomniac was doing. And I, I had, again, a bit of an arrogant chip on my shoulder by that point in time again. But then having to rewrite tools for this magnitude and scale, I was starting to get hit with a lot of like humbling lessons at that point in time. And I got in my head, and then we just kept figuring out problem after problem. One of the things that happened was the sort of, I spent a year and a half studying how the lighters worked, like figuring out and talking with all of them. And I came up with a system that I thought was really going to be awesome. And they all agreed to it. They thought it was great. We implemented it. It was terrible. Like, they hated it. So then that was one of those existential moments of the project. And then some folks on the artist side changed. Some folks on the engineering side changed. And ultimately kind of figured out basically what – they took some of the concepts that I had and kind of reworked it. And one of the fun things here was that when I looked at the stuff they wanted to do, I realized – a notable, it would be inefficient, but a version that was able to get up and running was effectively to halt, go back to my old database days. And I was able to effectively, I created an API that was totally clean, but underneath the hood, I was able to use SQLite effectively as yeah, an engine because so much of the stuff was really just about managing like how lights were attached to other things. And so, like, underneath the hood, I had a, an implementation that used this basically just to get the job done. The reason I mention this is because it's right around the same time that we hired Mark over. And the API had none of that, that, that SQL stuff inside of it. Mark came in. He was able to rewrite the entire implementation to be vastly faster and more scalable. So I do want to give credit where credit is due. I was able to get it up and running. But it was always one of these things where it was like, at this point in time, when he did it, kind of the third iteration we had on this thing. So it was definitely like each time we got like closer to, hey, it's on its feet. Now it's really functioning well. Now it's super fast. But it's funny because it's right around the same time as I was getting that project done. DreamWorks had been great, but it, it, the projects that were available were starting to, to dwindle. And it was around the same time that Google came, reached out to me. And it was this was actually after I had met Jen, who's by that point actually was my wife. It's a whole separate story. Uh, after we'd known each other for six months. And I had, a, I had my eldest on the way. Google had reached out a few times over LinkedIn. I didn't, I kind of ignored them. And then Jen was like, you probably should just respond. And so I was curious at the time about whether I could make it through the Google interview process um, just to see, could, was it possible? So after that fourth time, I did the phone screen. I did the 
the interviews, and then I ultimately got an offer, uh, to which I said no to three times. Because uh, I still really loved working in movies. What Google was offering me wasn't that great. And then, you know, we sort of figured out there was one possibility of going over to the Niantic team, which would have been interesting. Mark Dodderman's group. I'm not sure if you remember if you've ever met him or yep. yeah, I figure you might. But they were only doing internal hires, so I headed over to Photos, and uh, it it happened actually around the same time as my daughter's birth, so I did a reset. But I'll be honest, and I spent a lot of years over at Google, in at first stint in three different teams, kind of feeling out of place because that big tech culture of you got to do it perfect the first time and write long grad school-like documents to actually do the designs. And the stuff didn't really connect with users, but we were doing it because it was complex. All of these things ran pretty like anathema to how I had come up in the industry, which is like solving problems for people, doing it multiple times, being okay with being wrong, and pivoting where you needed to. So I, I struggled quite a lot of trying to figure out my place of just what the hell's going on here. And it was like, okay, maybe it's me. Maybe because like every like single time I was like, maybe I'm not learning the right stuff or I haven't, I really realized that there was a, like my perspective on the business was vastly different from big tech's perspective on business, which is that when I was in Wall Street or at Insomniac or at DreamWorks, I got it. Like, and I got what the business was, especially at Insomniac and DreamWorks, we sold content. And all the technology that we did was in service of that. And I, I realized that, that Google had a whole slew of cost centers, and, but they weren't actually connecting the dots to the business model underneath. I then tried to say, okay, let me see if I can propose some projects to actually see if I can, can we make photos money? And we tried to do it through ads and it kind of worked, there were kind of some interesting engagements, but ultimately the product area wasn't that interested in it at the time. This is back in 2014 after my twins got born. So I tried a couple of things. They got shut down. LA was not working out for me and my family at that point in time. So then someone said, well, why don't you check out Boulder? And I was like, that's crazy. I could never leave LA. And then I started looking at Colorado and it was like, all right, this seems interesting. So we um, came out to Colorado. I stepped foot in it the first time, October 21st of 2015. By... December 17th of 2015, we had closed on our house. So it was just like, bam. Yeah. And I had remembered that you were out here. And so I was like, oh, let me contact Robin. We, I, we, like, after I got here, we got to chatting again. I got to have a beer every once in a while. So I came over to Google, went to payments, which was, again, a sort of thing where it's a globe-spanning thing for Google. I was like, we should make this into a, a, an actual product. They didn't want to do that. Uh, so then I worked, went to a different ads research group and they were doing some image stuff, which was the last straw, like gasp for me at that point in time, where I was just like, I felt very much like a cog in the machine and not really doing much of anything. Uh, someone I'd worked with at payments to become the CTO of major league baseball who had created an office in Colorado. So I was like, all right, let me try that. And I head over there because I wanted very much to do AR because they've got all these great scans of all the stadiums and whatnot. But it also happened to be the same time when the Supreme Court struck down the law against sports gambling. 
So then all of a sudden I became effectively the manager of a new team, which was to create a gambling light app. I still wanted to try and keep the AR thing alive, which is when I tried to get you involved, but they struck that one down, which was sad. And again, it's all about what kind of the winds of the business have at that point in time. And sometimes it's just what's trendy and hot. So I did, I learned a lot more about gambling than I ever expected to. So I went to Vegas a couple of times, which is not my place, but I had to go there to actually understand the legal side of this. And then um, around the same time, so my wife was pregnant with my fourth child. Some of my friends at Google said they, they were getting serious about the business side of things. And I got I let myself get fooled. Um, and I headed back over to Google again, this time as an engineering manager, where I had an absurd number of reports right before COVID hit. So I learned a lot, basically, about how to manage a team remotely at that point in time and get projects done. Tried to basically, like, so I tried again to try and pivot into kind of more the business side, but Google really wasn't having that even then, which is super bizarre, especially where they're at now. And uh, then I joined a risk team for a little while. And then finally, I was like, let me see if I can get back into media. And I headed over to Twitch. Until yesterday, when after having reformulated a team last year, getting us all together, deprecating a product, doing like lots of stuff, Twitch decided to have layoffs. Uh, and I think one of the, the big takeaways as I was going through all of this was much, much like where I, I really started from this really strong place for wanting to do content, graphics, computer animation, games, and like, having it really be something impactful to people. I... There's a lot of it where I cost my way, like just by increments. And a lot of what I'm excited about now that I think that there's actually a tremendous analogy between that and what happened with big tech, which was a lot of like really awesome stuff that they legitimately went after and then kind of got lost in the morass along the way. So what I'm excited about now is being able to figure out better pathways, not just to like getting back to the content side, the visual side for me, but where there are lessons more generally that can help out the industry, where the stuff that we're doing here can actually have positive impact so that people aren't as lost, people have a vision, people have a goal that they're really going after. So that is like one of the, the meta things for me that I'm excited about for all the stuff that we're doing.